Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 389th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, how you doing over there? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. We're going to be talking about one of our most favorite things, Haunted, haunted cemeteries. cemeteries. Yes, this is number 19. Dang. We just keep finding more and more of these places. We love it. We're going to be talking about several of them here, but before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Linda, Leanne, and Chelsea, who spells her name with just an S-I at the end. Thank you for joining us in the crew. And now this moment, Naughty. Robert Clay Allison is buried at West of Pecos Museum, which is also known as the Robert Clay Allison Burial Site. He was an American Western Frontier outlaw who had a real penchant for shooting people. He once remarked, I never killed a man that did not need killing. Needless to say, he had some personality problems and was quickly discharged from the Confederate Army shortly after joining up during the Civil War for that reason. He went on to be a trail boss and met up with a desperado who had a grudge against him named Chunk Colbert. The two men spent a day carousing and drinking, but things went south at dinner when Colbert reached for Allison's gun. Allison quickly shot Colbert. He was asked by someone why he would sit down to dinner with a man who had a grudge against him, and he said, I didn't want to send him to hell on an empty stomach. Allison was at Cimarron's St. James Hotel in 1875 when he got in a gunfight and killed Francisco Pancho Griego. He and his brother John were drinking and gambling at a saloon in Los Animas, Colorado, when Constable Charles Faber came along with a shotgun. The constable wounded John before Allison killed him. Then he changed his ways. In 1880, he moved to a ranch, married, and had two daughters. One would expect that an outlaw would die in a blaze of glory, but Allison died in a freak accident. He was going for supplies, and a grain sack started sliding from the wagon. As he reached for the sack, he fell from the wagon, and the wheel ran over his neck, killing him. And that certainly is odd. you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> and now, this month in history. 
month of June on the 26th in 1541, Francis Pizarro meets a bloody end. Pizarro had been a Spanish conquistador, and he conquered modern-day Peru and brought down the Incas. He had a rival conquistador who challenged him when he was governor of New Castile, and that is what would eventually become Peru. He had that conquistador executed. That man's son wanted revenge, and he would have it. His name was Diego de Almagro. Pizarro was eating dinner at his place in Lima when Diego and several of his men busted in. Pizarro grabbed a sword from the wall and defended himself successfully against three men before Almagro's men stabbed him in the throat. Before he died, Pizarro shouted, Jesus, and drew a cross on the ground with his own blood, and then he kissed it. He had been one of the most ruthless conquistadors. He was buried in Lima Cathedral. In 1977, his burial box was opened and forensic scientists found that the skull was broken by numerous violent blows. So apparently he got more than just stabbed, which seemed fitting for such a violent man. We all love cemeteries around here. These are places of beauty and memorial, even the ones that have become overgrown and neglected. Headstones contain valuable information that can reveal the ethnicity, the demography, or even the epidemiology of an area. Also, the feelings that people had at certain times or in certain places about religion and death. On this episode, we're not only going to talk about several haunted cemeteries, Cemetery Memorial Park in Massachusetts, Oakland and Greenwood Cemeteries in Florida, Rose Hill Cemetery in California, and Mount City and Springdale Cemeteries in Illinois, but also some of the difficult issues with cemeteries desecration, and the burial of blacks. These kinds of issues can lead to unrest. Join us for Haunted Cemeteries 19. So this first cemetery that we're going to talk about was suggested by one of our listeners, Leo Kelly. He contacted me on Instagram and said, have you seen the story here, the documentary? It's really something you should check out. And this is Cemetery Memorial Park in California in Ventura. You're probably a little bit familiar with that. I don't know that you've ever heard of Cemetery Memorial Park. I have not, but I'm familiar with Ventura. (laughs) We watch the new version of the Ghost Hunters, and one of the new Ghost Hunters on there is Brandon Alvis. He's not only a paranormal investigator, but he's a filmmaker, and he released a documentary on Cemetery Memorial Park in Ventura, California back in 2019. And I know one of the places that it was shown was at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. If you guys want to check out the trailer for that, you can do that on his website, brandonjalvis.com. We do have a link in the show notes. Kelly, you and I have talked about the desecration of cemeteries many times on this podcast, and specifically how they can lead to hauntings. And one of the things that kind of brought this up for me, too, Tammy and Brian Burroughs, they're good friends of ours, listeners of the show for a long time. We've visited cemeteries with them. And she had posted in the Spooktacular crew that they went out to where her great, I think it was either her great-grandmother or her great-great-grandmother's buried. And, of course, it was completely overgrown. So they went in there and cleared up all the vegetation. The tombstones were crooked, fallen over. They fixed them and just made it look like new again. And it got me to thinking, you know, there's so many of these cemeteries that get this way because there's nobody there to take care of them. Exactly. And then you have these places that should be getting taken care of because they're a standard cemetery, not just a family plot somewhere. And you have stories of this kind of desecration. And the story here is horrible. 
Beneath this park are buried hundreds of bodies. They were never moved. Their headstones and memorials were lifted off of plots and dumped into a canyon back in 1964. This had been St. Mary's Cemetery, and one man's dedication for 14 years brought to light the desecration that was propagated by the city council. Good grief. So when we talk about desecration, we're usually talking about teenagers that are going into a park, drinking, knocking over tombstones, spray paint, and something like that. This was propagated by the local government. That's insane. Yeah, and it's just horrible. On October 3, 1862, a parcel of land measuring 3.69 acres was purchased from George S. Wright, Henry Webb, Edmund L. Gould, and Daniel Waterman. This was then deeded to the Wright Reverend Thaddeus Amat, Bishop of the Diocese of Monterey, Los Angeles, for the use and purpose of a Catholic burying ground at San Buenaventura. In 1889, the city took over control of the non-Catholic portion of the cemetery. Internment stopped in May of 1944. In August of 1949, the Planning Commission recommended raising the tombstones and building houses on the property. I think they did that in Poltergeist. Oh, good, good idea. True. The plan was rejected. The next plan would come in 1963 with Ventura City Manager Charles Ryman getting the go-ahead from the city council to build a memorial park. Curbs, slabs, vaults, headstones, and bases were to be removed. It was suggested that small brass markers be set flush with the ground to mark the burials. We're not completely sure what happened, but the cemetery was demolished. Some families collected slabs. Other slabs were used in construction, added to abstract art sculptures, and ground into fill. And hearing that it was ground into fill and used in construction, I wonder if we have hauntings going on in buildings and roadways that they don't even know because these are people's tombstones. Right, I would suspect. Headstones were removed by the end of summer in 1966, with the entire project ending in 1969. The push to restore the cemetery continues today. The people buried here were Native American, ranchers, cowboys, pioneers, and veterans. Some of those veterans were war heroes, even receiving the Medal of Honor. Now they lie below the dirt, unidentified, where dogs defecate and urinate, and the homeless and others leave their trash. The Ayala family was buried here. Rita Davis Ayala was a pioneer of the city. Her husband, Jose Ramon de los Santos Ayala, was a veteran of the Civil War, enlisting with the California Volunteers, and he had an honored place in the ranks of the Grand Army of the Republic. Their son, Alfonso, preceded him in death at the age of 27. Many of the buried here served with Company C, 1st Battalion Native Cavalry. Members of the Hobson family were buried here. They had a successful cattle business, Hobson Brothers Packing Company, and many butcher shops in downtown Ventura, Santa Barbara, and Los Angeles. One of the brothers, Abram, was considered a consummate horseman in the Vaquero tradition. In 1893, William Vandiver was buried here. He served as a general in the Union Army during the American Civil War and became a United States representative from California and Iowa. Well, those are pretty separate states there. Yeah, no kidding. A little bit of a jaunt. Yeah. There was James Sumner, who was buried here in 1912. He had been a United States Army soldier and a recipient of the Medal of Honor. In 1990, the American Legion Post 339 placed markers over the graves of Private James Sumner and Brevet Major General William Vandiver. So at least they're getting some kind of honor there. But And they move cemeteries all the time, so... It's going to happen, but at least move the bodies, too. Exactly. This reminds me so much of Cheeseman Park in Denver. The only thing missing here is that you don't have a guy breaking bodies apart and putting them in multiple boxes because he's making more money that way. Yeah. (laughs) 
There had been 3,800 people buried here, and many of them still remain, with only a few of the final resting places marked, which may be why there are rumors of ghosts here. These include headless figures and pirate ghosts. A local legend is connected to a young man who unfortunately hanged himself from a tree in the park, and people claim to sometimes see his ghostly body swinging from the tree on foggy nights. People who live near the park claim to see apparitions in the street as though they are wandering around looking for their graves or tombstones or something. Yeah, so when Leo suggested this to me, I was just going to put it up there as this is what it's like when graveyards get desecrated. We need to be mindful about that. And I wasn't even expecting there to be any ghosts. And I just happened to do some research to see if I could find some ghosts. And sure enough, it was haunted. I mean, of course, you'd think this place has got to be haunted with what happened here. Right. I I expected there would be quite a bit of unrest. So in our world, that's, I guess, what you would call a happy little accident to run into some ghosts when you weren't expecting them. (laughs) I suppose so. Next, we have a couple of cemeteries right here in Tallahassee, Florida, Oakland and Greenwood Cemeteries. The historic Oakland Cemetery is located near the corner of Brevard and North Brano Streets in Tallahassee, Florida at 838 North Brano Street. The cemetery was established in 1902, and at the time, blacks and whites were buried in separate sections. It took on the name The Old Cemetery, even though there was an Old City Cemetery. So I don't know why this one got called The Old Cemetery, too, but it's not the official Old City Cemetery. In 1936, another cemetery was established in the city solely for the burial of people of color, and that would be Evergreen Cemetery. Commissioners voted that any remaining plot set aside for blacks at Oakland would be taken back by the city and resold. There was a big problem, though. The black citizens were having none of this because of the land upon which Evergreen was supposed to be founded. This was, of course, the undesirable low-lying ground in town, completely unsuitable for burial. And as people I'm sure no, Florida, we are below sea level, so the last thing you want to be is on low-lying ground. Yeah, definitely not. The Tallahassee Daily Democrat wrote, The vexing problem of burial lots for Negroes and cemetery regulations, including titles to cemetery lots, is before the city commission again. The commission directed its attorney, James Messer Jr., to draft an ordinance for early adoption that will regulate the depth of all graves to be dug in the four cemeteries inside the corporate limits. Officials admitted the new law would have a definite bearing on further use by Negroes of one of their burial grounds in the city. Recently, a new Negro cemetery was opened, but members of that race have vigorously protested and so far are said to be almost unanimously opposed to its use as a burial ground. Despite these objections, the commission voted in February of 1937 to close the cemetery to blacks. So at first I was just looking at Oakland Cemetery because I'd heard that it had this haunted location inside of it. And as I was researching it, I came upon this information. So then I started going down that road. J.R.D. Laster was a well-known black undertaker in town, and his name comes up over and over as he fought against the commission. He organized the black community and they founded the Greenwood Cemetery Company so they could buy their own land for burial. Evergreen Cemetery would never come to fruition. The company purchased 10 acres of land in an area lying east of Old Bainbridge Road. The land was purchased from Irma L. Jenkins, who was one of the company's founders. They paid $10, and Greenwood Cemetery was officially established in 1937. Burials began soon after that, and the cemetery is today 12.4 acres. Unfortunately, through the years, neglect took over the cemetery as families passed or left the city. The understanding had been that families would care for the plots, but obviously when they start moving or dying off, there's nobody to take care of them anymore. Once all the founding members died, only the undertaker's daughter was left to care for the cemetery. 
1985, cleanup efforts began as the city took over restoration of the deteriorated cemetery. Greenwood Cemetery was officially rededicated in October of 1987. And it was a great thing. The entire community, all races, came out to clean up the cemetery and get it back up to standard. That's good. I like hearing that. Greenwood Cemetery's grave markers reveal the social structure of Tallahassee's Black community over a 50-year period. There are simple markers, there are big commercially designed headstones, and there are homemade markers. What makes this graveyard unique among the Tallahassee cemeteries are the Afro-American folk art and traditions infused there. Many of these traditions come from West and Central Africa. Concrete headstones have decorative pieces of mirror and tile applied to them, and this is said to represent water. This reminds us of the thought that a person is crossing a river to get to the afterlife. Crosses are fashioned from metal and wood. Some headstones have been painted silver, and there are plots decorated with items that belong to the deceased, like cups and saucers or bowls. This reminds us of the Latino cemetery we stumbled upon one day that was full of items decorating most of the plots, from flowers to religious icons to personal items. Was that when we were up at Casadega that we saw that cemetery? I can't remember when we stumbled across that. No, it was when we were on our cemetery bingo trip when we were exploring different locations and we just happened upon it. Yeah, we were going to one specific cemetery and we'd wandered around there and found a bunch of our symbols and stuff for the bingo card. And then we were just driving along and we're like, what's that? Because obviously it caught our eye because there was so much stuff in the graveyard. And we got out and looked at it and we took pictures. I think, did we put them up on Instagram? I can't remember. I think we did a live also. I think we did do a live video. And I was just amazed that they had all this stuff. Of course, most graveyards nowadays would never let you put that much stuff out. Oh, absolutely not. It was very individualized with so many personal items. We were unable to find any haunts at Greenwood Cemetery, but Oakland Cemetery has a story. Inside Oakland Cemetery, one will find the onion-domed, lichen-covered, and crumbling Phillips Mausoleum at Block 18, Lot 12. This was built by and for architect Calvin C. Phillips, who designed structures for the Paris Expo in 1877 and the old clock tower in the All Saints neighborhood in Tallahassee. The mausoleum was built in the early 20th century and displayed the eccentricities of the man who chose a mixture of Greek, Indian, Doric, and Roman styles. There's not much known about Phillips. He was born in Massachusetts in the early 1830s and moved to Tallahassee alone in 1907, even though he was married and had two daughters. He lived as a hermit there and was obsessed with time, which is why he built the old clock tower. He was obsessed with his final burial spot as well. He spent days and days for years building the crypt and just sitting inside of it. When asked about it, he said he was getting used to it. I mean, you know, sometimes you want to try things out, you know, before you buy, Kelly. Oh, my word. This would be before you bite it. (laughs) This is like going to a a funeral home or a casket dealer and setting up your your future casket and just climbing inside. You know, maybe you should, though. It's kind of like when you go to the mattress store. You want to make sure it's going to be comfortable. And this is like for the rest of your afterlife. Well, this is true. (laughs) You're like sitting in there going, do I want to rot in this one or that one? Is this comfortable enough for my bones? Are the (laughs) bugs going to be able to get in? (laughs) Good grief. The worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. The ants play pinnacle on your snout? That's right. (laughs) You might just want to know exactly where you're going to be for sure. At the time, he was in his 80s and not far from his death. The mausoleum was finished in November 1919, and he died only a few days later. Wow. So he was just waiting for it to be finished, I guess. Yeah, he was just holding on for that last moment. This led to a legend starting about his death that claimed he hired a carpenter to build him a coffin out of cherry wood. When Phillips got the casket, he had it delivered to the mausoleum and then shut himself inside of it where he died. 
People claim that this is why his spirit is at unrest. But it could be for another reason, since this scenario more than likely did not play out. In 2000, vandals broke into the crypt and stole the skull of Phillips. It has never been recovered. And perhaps that is why people claim to see Philip's ghost sitting on top of the mausoleum. His apparition has also been spotted walking around the cemetery. Yeah, so don't be stealing people's skulls. That's what happens. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Our sponsor for this episode is HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And it's been a great treasure for you and I, Kelly. It's helped us to have great ideas for what are we going to make for dinner. The recipes have been amazing. So tasty. HelloFresh offers over 27 recipes each week that you can choose from. The way it works, they'll put three of them up on the top. You go and look. If you don't want one or two or all three of them, you can switch them out for some other stuff. We do that all the time. There's lots to choose from, not just meat meals, but you can get vegetarian meals, calorie smart choices, craft burgers, and there's even extra special gourmet options where, you know, they tack on a few extra dollars and you can get something that's a little bit more of the epic crust. There really is something for everyone, and it offers a lot of flexibility. You can customize your order on the app within minutes. You can change your delivery day if you need to, your plan size, or you can even skip a week, which we found was very easy to do because that's what we did while we went on vacation. Absolutely. Very convenient. Yeah, it was like two steps and had the meal skipped for that week and then chose what we're going to have when we get back. If you would like to give HelloFresh a try, go to HelloFresh.com slash Bump12 and use code Bump12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash Bump12 and use code Bump12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. And you can join us with America's number one meal kit. We highly recommend it. You will not be sorry. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Next, we have Rose Hill Historical Cemetery at Black Diamond Mines. This is a Welsh Protestant cemetery that's found at the Black Diamond Mines Regional Preserve. This area was the Mount Diablo Coalfield. Ooh, Mount Devil. <laughs> In what was Nortonville and Somersville, California. A low grade of coal was dug out of the mines here from 1850 until the turn of the century. As the coal dried up, the town started to slump economically. But they got a boost in 1920 when silica sand started to be mined out of the Hazel Atlas mine. This was used in glass making. This mining had a good run until the 1940s, and all of the mines were shut down for good at that time. The people living in Somersville left the town, taking their homes with them. Huh? 
You heard that right. They literally took their homes down, board by board, and took them to a new town to reassemble. Alrighty then. Can you imagine everybody's <laughs> like, we're moving out of here. Everybody grab your house and let's go. <laughs> Where's your hammer? Get those nails out. <laughs> they did leave behind their dead at the Rose Hill Cemetery, which is surrounded by a black wrought iron fence. This was named for Emma Rose, who was the daughter of the man who bought the land from the mining company. Graves here date from 1865 to 1954. Many people died in the towns around the mines, from a variety of things like mining accidents and black lung, to epidemics of diphtheria, typhus, scarlet fever, and smallpox. The cemetery looks really nice today, but before this became a preserve, the graveyard was desecrated with headstones being broken or knocked off their bases. Supervising naturalist Tracy Parent put together a team and they painstakingly put the headstones back together and did their best to figure out where people were buried, even though early records had been destroyed. They even managed to get 12 headstones that had been taken returned to the cemetery. The desecration of the cemetery seems to have led to some hauntings. The experiences got so intense that it said that 119 exorcisms had to be performed. Good grief. I wonder who counted all those and how do you keep track of that? One of the creepier hauntings describes 13 ghosts of children all dressed in black wandering the graveyard. We like our children ghosts, Kelly, but I don't know that I want to see a big group of children dressed in black wandering around like that. Well, this is true. Children of the corn. As long as there's no corn around, I guess it's okay. <laughs> Good grief. Perhaps they're victims of an epidemic who are in their burial clothing. There are also floating, glowing crosses seen in the cemetery. A ghost that glows white has been seen gliding over the headstones and the sounds of a horse-drawn carriage have been heard on the cemetery road. Other sounds that are heard include ghostly cries and laughter, bells jingling, and wind when there is no actual wind. Interesting. That's a really weird haunting to hear. You know, you're outside and you hear wind and you feel wind, but there is no wind. I guess you'd be like, wow, it feels like something's blowing. And you look up and the tree's not moving. The most well-known ghost here is Sarah Norton. Nortonville is named for her family. Her husband, Noah Norton, had founded the town, but he died in a mining accident. She had lost her religion along the way and was a very opinionated and strong woman. She worked as a midwife and had delivered many babies in the mining community. She was traveling in a buggy to deliver another one of those babies on October 5, 1879, when she was thrown from the buggy and killed. She was not given a proper Christian burial because two storms erupted each time they attempted to have the funeral. And she's a tad angry about that. She appears in the graveyard as a gliding lady or a glowing lady. And she has been nicknamed the White Witch because she is a malevolent entity that scares people who see her. Next, we have Mound City National Cemetery. President Abraham Lincoln authorized the creation of 12 national cemeteries on July 17, 1862. And one of those was Mound City National Cemetery in, of course, Mound City, Illinois. This city had large naval shipyards that provided warships to the Union's Mississippi Squadron during the Civil War, which was comprised of 80 vessels. The USS Cairo, USS Cincinnati, and USS Mound City were some of their famous ironclads that they produced. There was a nearby military hospital, and the first burials would be men who succumbed to their injuries and illness. The hospital could care for up to 1,500 men, and the first arrivals were from the Battle of Belmont in Kentucky, followed by a campaign at Fort Donelson, and there would also be casualties from the Battle of Shiloh. Starting in 1864, bodies were reinterred from local battlefield cemeteries here. The 10 acres are the final resting place for around 8,500 people from all of the wars, and burials still continue today for service veterans. It is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. There is one Civil War Brigadier General buried here, John Basil Turchin. 
There's also a beautiful marble monument that was erected in 1874 for the Illinois State Soldiers and Sailors Monument, a tribute to the unknown fallen during the Civil War. There is one spared here, and it belongs to a woman. Many believe that this apparition is the wife of Brigadier General Turchin, Madame Turchin. Turchin was Russian-born and known as the Mad Cossack because of his service in the army of the Russian Tsar. He loved his wife and hated to be away from her, so he actually brought her to the battlefields with him. Can you imagine? (laughs) No. (laughs) And that she would want to go. Right. She witnessed his charge that saved the day at the Battle of Chickamauga. She wrote the only woman's war diary of the military campaigns Turchin was involved with. We imagine her account was rose-colored because her husband was later court-martialed for not controlling his men and allowed them to burn and pillage towns. After his death in 1901, she visited his grave at Mound City often, and that is what her ghost continues to do today. And I didn't see anything that said that she was actually buried there, too. I would assume she would have been because she could have been buried next to her husband, but just weird that her ghost would be there if she's not buried there. And our final cemetery is Springdale Cemetery in Illinois. This is located in Peoria, Illinois. Peoria was established in 1691, making it the oldest European settlement in Illinois. I had no idea. Neither did I. The city was named for the Peoria tribe from that area. Springdale Cemetery started as a private cemetery and was founded in 1854, although the first interment didn't happen until 1857. The cemetery was platted over 360 acres of rolling hills, but was later trimmed back to 223 acres. There are over 78,000 people buried here, and there are 15 private mausoleums and one large public mausoleum. That is a large cemetery. It is, and can you imagine if it did cover that 360 acres? I cannot. a lot of land. There are several notable burials here that include 900 military veterans, with one special area designated as Soldier's Hill. Lucy Brotherson Ting was the founder of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and she has a plot here. There is also the founder of the Bradley Polytechnic Institute, which became Bradley University, Lydia Moss Bradley. American artist Hedley Waycock is here. He was Peoria's best-loved painter and was self-taught. A newspaper writer commented of him, Waycock was gratified to believe that he had played a large part in helping many people learn to appreciate the vast beauties of nature and have a deeper longing for the finer things of life. Former Illinois Governor Thomas Ford has his final resting place here. And the father of American aviation, Octave Chanute, is buried at Springdale. He was a mentor for Orville and Wilbur Wright and was a pioneer in wood preservation and civil engineering of bridges. He used some of his ideas for building trusses on a bridge to creating stacked wings for planes. Chanute was also honored by becoming part of the Frise of American History in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. And it describes him as the mentor for Orville and Wilbur Wright, but There was a lot of contention between those men, too, because I didn't know this, but apparently the Wrights patented a lot of the stuff that they did and they didn't want to share their information with anybody. They may not have necessarily been about so much promoting the field of aviation as it was their aviation. Ah, And so he was really upset about that because he's like, if we all combine our heads and our ideas, we can really make this thing go. Sure. And so... He would take them aside every so often. I think even one time he confronted Orville about it and said, you know, it's so wrong for you to try to patent this stuff. Because first of all, I don't think you're going to be able to patent them because they're not that far out of ideas. There's other people that are using this idea of, I don't know, it was something they were doing with their wings and other people were doing it too. One of the reasons why he was called the father of American aviation is not because he necessarily came up with the idea of having the stacked wings, 
but he further promoted it and went even further. I think he would get to the point where they had like four stacked wings, so it would help to keep the planes airborne for a bit longer. Of course, we know that it went to just having the two, and now today we just have the one wings. There is a true crime story connected to Springdale Cemetery. The body of Mildred Hallmark was found inside the cemetery on June 18, 1935. Mildred had been a pretty auburn-haired 19-year-old. She'd been heading home the night before after a date at the movie theater. She took the streetcar to her stop and was never seen alive again. A local newspaper article reports on the trial after the arrest of a serial rapist in the area named Gerald Thompson. The title is Sister of Slain Girl Weeps on Witness Stand, Identifies Clothing and Murder Trial. This was out of the Chicago Tribune Press Service. Peoria, Illinois, July 26th. The torn garments that pretty 19-year-old Mildred Hallmark wore on the night of June 16th when she accepted the invitation of Gerald Thompson to escort her home were exhibited to a jury here today. The garments are the first links in a chain of evidence with which the state hopes to send Thompson, 26-year-old tool worker, to the electric chair for Miss Hallmark's rape and murder. One by one, the garments were identified in court today by Ruby Hallmark, blonde elder sister of Mildred. Her eyes streaming with tears... The sister took the stand this morning before a jury in the court of Circuit Judge Joseph E. Daly and described the clothes worn by Miss Hallmark when she had left her home on the afternoon of June 16th to go to a downtown cafeteria where she was employed. With a series of low-voiced yeses, the girl identified the clothing. There was a gray and white plaid coat that formed a shroud for the girl's nude body when it was found the next morning in a creek in wooded Springdale Cemetery. A white summer dress and pink slip were stained and smeared with mud. Slashed with the scissors that Thompson habitually carried with him, the girl's silken undergarments were submitted to the jury in fragments. There was also a little paper-wrapped bundle of knitting, an unfinished white wool sweater, which was found beside the body and identified in court this morning. The testimony of the victim's sister foreshortened by agreement between E.V. Champion, prosecutor of Peoria County, and Ren Thurman, defense counsel, was the high point of the day. Thompson sat unmoved throughout the identification of the clothing, but the jurors and the 300 spectators who jammed the courtroom watched her every gesture on the stand. The testimony of John McGinnis, 19 of Dixon, a Bradley Institute student and busboy in the restaurant where Miss Hallmark was employed, revealed that just two circumstances placed the girl at a lonely streetcar transfer corner not far from her home. It was here Thompson accosted her, offered to drive her home, and instead took her into neighboring Springdale Cemetery, where he has confessed he raped and murdered her. My roommate... Reynold McDaniels used to meet me when I got through work, young McGinnis said, but that night he didn't come, and because I had no place to go, I asked Mildred to go to a movie with me. It was the first date that we had had together. The second event of the night of June 16th was a simple, commonplace occurrence. We got out of the movie and walked to the car line, McGinnis continued. The country club car was just pulling out when we got to the corner, so we walked up the street and she got on a Knoxville car. The country club car, the testimony of McGinnis and other testimonies showed, would have taken the Hallmark girl within a block of her home. Instead, she was compelled to transfer from the Knoxville car, and while waiting for her car, she was met by Thompson. McGinnis, who lived in another section of the city, left his fellow worker at the downtown street car stop. What was the picture you saw, Prosecutor Champion asked. The people's enemy, McGinnis replied, and with slow deliberation, turned in the witness chair and stared at Thompson. He kind of probably felt like that was going to be his girl. So what did you do to her? Yeah. Burt Powers, local photographer, and Max Webster, county surveyor, identified pictures and maps of Springdale Cemetery, which will be used throughout the trial. These also formed the basis for the testimony of William McGarvey, 65-year-old caretaker in the cemetery, who found the nearly nude body of the girl on the morning of June 17th. The day's session ended as it began with a relative of the slain girl testifying. 
John Hallmark, the father who worked in the same factory with the young defendant, was the last of a series of witnesses who told of the discovery of the body and its identification as that of Mildred Hallmark. Thompson was found guilty and sentenced to die in the electric chair at the Joliet prison. He had apparently punched Mildred so hard that he broke her neck. He was executed in October of 1935. Mildred may be Our Lady in White at this cemetery. This apparition is usually seen close to where Mildred's body had been discovered, near a place that had been the duck pond. A gazebo now stands near the spot. She is seen wearing white because that is the color of the dress that she wore on her date. People also report orbs of light that flutter around the gazebo. Other mysterious activity includes hearing disembodied voices in the cemetery, not only talking to each other, but talking to the person who hears them. Some kind of haunting music is heard on the air as well. One man reported having a conversation with an elderly man who looked very real to him, but ended up vanishing into thin air as he started to walk away. There are also reports of a witch's circle here. The Cole family plot can be located because of two prominent features, the sassafras tree and a granite obelisk monument made from imported scotch granite that feature a large inverted torch on one side. There's a granite circle that borders the plot. The Cole family was headed by Almirin Cole, who opened Peoria's first distillery. He and his wife, Chloe, are buried here, along with their children. They had nine of them, and many died young, with eight having their final resting place here. The distinctive sassafras tree here has been used twice by people who hanged themselves, the most recent in 2000. It has the nickname the Devil's Tree, and many believe it's because the leaves of the sassafras look like a trident or pitchfork. Adding to the mystique of this plot is the fact that the Cole family is buried in a circle around the obelisk. That is where the nickname Witch's Circle comes from. And there are rumors that satanic rituals have been performed in Cole Circle. Adding credibility to these rumors are people who claim to hear chanting on the air, feel cold spots, and some claim to not only get that feeling of being watched, but they actually see weird shadowy figures in the circle. Aaron Egnatz, and I hope I'm saying that last name right, is the creator of Hauntings Around America. You can follow her over on Instagram. She's got some great stuff there. As a matter of fact, Kelly, I think last week she just did an investigation at Waverly Hills. Nice. And she caught an EVP calling her a hoe. Oh, my word. (laughs) She actually has that up on her Instagram if you guys want to check that out. That's Hauntings Around America. Anyway, she'd written an article on Springdale Cemetery And in that article, she relayed an experience that she had. I'm going to share that here. I recently visited Springdale Cemetery on a very cold and windy day, which made investigating pretty tough. I spent a majority of my time in the Summit Range area. Here I was drawn to a couple headstones that had been knocked over. I don't know how long it's been since they fell, but you could definitely feel the overwhelming sadness of the area. As I was visiting these headstones, I began to hear music coming from what I suspect was around the 1920s, but I could be off by a bit but I do know it was from a long time ago. I followed the music for a while, which led me to a lovely mausoleum that had clearly been touched by time. I no longer heard the music, but was completely absorbed by it. The door had a slight hole, which made it possible to see inside the mausoleum. Inside was the burial chamber of the dead, along with flowers, which had clearly been there for quite a while, as they'd all turned black and brittle with age. So pretty creepy to hear music from the 1920s while you're standing in a cemetery. Most definitely. Because even if there was a car passing by, you wouldn't expect to hear that kind of music coming from it. No, definitely not. We love our cemeteries, whether they come with a haunting or not. Are any of these places full of stones and bones haunted? That That is for you to decide. Just some more cemeteries for us to visit, Kelly. 
Put them on the list. And there's two of them up there in Tallahassee, and we will be near there next week. Oh. I don't know if we'll have time to stop, but you guys are going to be listening to this episode while we're on our road trip to New Orleans. Hopefully we got to meet some of you while we were out and about. We can't wait. I want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Stephen and the Spooktacular crew had written, The trickster is back. Several months ago, I was fixing my vacuum cleaner and two screws were missing as I put it together. Today, I'm once again working on the dang vacuum. And as I'm putting it together, two of the missing screws fell from above my head and landed in front of me. <laughs> so they're being helpful. Yeah. Not mischievous. <laughs> Although you got to wonder, did you take the screws to begin with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was looking down, so I don't know where they came from, but this sort of thing happens with my keys every so often. Pretty sure it's the spirit that followed me home after an investigation last year. Very annoying. Well, Stephen, you must not have told the person not to follow you home when you were investigating. Possibly. We always make sure to do that at the end of all of our investigations. Let the spirits know they are not welcome to come home with us. We keep that black tourmaline in the car just to make sure that that lets them know you are for sure going to have to stay here. True story. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. He was an American frontier. Nope. The constable wounded John. We all love cemeteries around here. There are places. Mm-mm. <laughs> I love it when you say something wrong and go. <laughs> we all love cemeteries around here. There are. Really? <laughs> she did. Again? It. Again. <laughs> Can I help you with your glasses? Ugh, they're dirty. <laughs> Oh, sure. Blame it on dirty glasses. That's what you did yesterday. Cemetery Memorial Park. Memorial? Yeah, we need to, like, tell them to... Kiwi! Kiwi! That is enough. That's enough. It was suggested that small brass knockers be set flush to the ground. knockers. (laughs) (laughs) You said knockers. (laughs) Instead of markers. I don't know which kind of knockers I was thinking of. <laughs> That's terrible. It took it a minute to register. I'm, so I'm like, tired. what did she just say? I just got right on reading. That's something unusual in the cemetery. Oh my God. <laughs> she just snorted. I did snort. <laughs> her husband. Her husband? <laughs>
She was traveling in a buggy to deliver another one of those babies on October 5th, 1879, when she was thrown from the boogie. Boogie? Boogity boogity. Thrown from the boogie. Boogity boogity. Get down, boogie. Get down on it. Get down on it. We always end up singing on these things. (laughs) We should put together our own group, Kelly. No. (laughs) Nobody would come to listen. Her tur... Her turs? Tur, 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 tur. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 